Hi, my name is Mallory Jenna Robinson. Join me on a hateful homicide, a true crime and investigative journalism podcast dedicated to telling the stories regarding the murders of our transgender, gender non-binary, intersex, and two-spirit community members in the United States and abroad. This is a hateful homicide. What's your emergency? An arrest in the death of a transgender woman. When we talk about the LGBT community's marginalization, trans women of color specifically experience the most violence. These cases are true. The victims are real. And their voices matter. This is a hateful homicide. The murder of Marsha P. Johnson. A horror on the Hudson. Monday, July 6th, 1992. Hudson River, New York, New York. Warning, the following episode contains strong language, misgendering, as well as acts of violence and other possible triggering information. Listening and viewing discretion is advised. Hey, hey, what do you say? Pastor Bill, are you okay? Why are you here today? Darling, I want my gay rights now. I think it's about time the gay brothers and sisters got their rights, and especially the women. <laughs> how, how will this affect you and your job? Darling, I don't have a job. I'm on welfare. I have no intentions of getting a job as long as this country discriminates against homosexuals. There's only homosexuals, bisexuals, and trisexuals, darling. And there's no straight people. Because yeah. they're just trying out women, honey. Thank you very much for talking to us. Why are you here today? I'm here because of a dyke. Right on. Well, I, I mean, I hope they, you know, come to their senses and, and pass a normal bill. <laughs> That's what. It's Monday, July 6th, 1992, in the city of Hudson River, New York, New York. It would be the home where African-American, 46-year-old, transgender female, Marsha Payetno-Mine Johnson would reside. And when she disappeared, just after 4th of July of 1992, it will leave the city of New York nudging for justice for years to come. Welcome my audience to season five, episode one, the murder of Marsha Payetno Mine Johnson, a horror on the Hudson. This case contains murder, mystery, drama, trauma, survival. In this episode, we're gonna take a look into where Marsha's ultimate remains were discovered in the Hudson River. We're also gonna look into the evolution of the gay rights and LGBTQ plus rights stemming from 1967 to plus. We're also gonna pose the question, was Marsha murdered by the hands of a serial killer? Also, we wanna hear from Marsha's ride or die, Sylvia Rivera, and her own truth and journey into helping lead the way into STAR. But before my audience, before we go into all of this horrific, hateful content, 
the hateful homicide of Marsha P. Johnson. Let's take a listen into the 13 interesting facts regarding where Marsha's ultimately remains would be discovered. The Hudson River is a major river that runs through New York City in the United States of America. It begins at Lake Tier and runs south into New York State, where it is separated into the Upper Hudson River and the Lower Hudson River. The Hudson River is also historically significant because it was previously an important route for shipping commodities between New York Harbor and the Great Lakes through the Erie Canal, which substantially aided New York trade. Here are some interesting facts about the Hudson River. Number 1. The Hudson River stretches for 507 kilometers or 315 miles. Number 2. The source of the Hudson River is Lake Tier of the Clouds in the Adirondack Park, at an altitude of 1,317 meters or 4,322 feet. It ultimately empties into the Atlantic Ocean at New York Harbor. Number 3. It runs almost exclusively inside the state of New York, with the exception of a 21 miles or 34 kilometer stretch where it forms the border between New York and New Jersey. Number 4. The lower half of the river is a tidal estuary occupying the Hudson Fjord, an inlet which formed during the most recent period of North American glaciation, estimated at 26,000 to 13,300 years ago. Number 5. The river is named after Henry Hudson, an Englishman who explored it in 1609 while sailing for the Dutch East India Company. Canada's Hudson Bay is also named after him. And so, my audience, that was just 13 interesting facts pertaining to the Hudson River. This is where Marsha P. Johnson's remains would be discovered. This hateful homicide, this horror on the Hudson that left our beautiful 46-year-old African-American transgender female slain, found strangled. But of course, like the Hudson River, though it comes with its highs and lows, we did cover back in season three, the hateful homicide of Diane Delia, if I can't have you. So we know all too well that the Hudson River has had its fair share of hateful homicide victims. And unfortunately, Marsha P. Johnson did become one of those victims. As his body is being discovered on the Hudson River, Marsha P. Johnson's family, loved ones and friends, began to come become concerned. This isn't like Marsha. She was last seen just after a cookout back on 4th of July, 1992. Her family and friends knew that it was like Marsha sometimes too take some time to herself. After all, she had navigated so much in her life as a black trans woman, mental health, being a survival sex worker, navigating being unhoused. And Marsha sometimes needed time to herself. So when she initially didn't show back up on that Saturday, July 5th, her loved ones weren't too concerned. It was just Marsha being Marsha. But by that Monday, July 6th of 1992, still no word from Marsha. Everyone knew that this was cause to be concerned. Because my audience, the violence that our community faces far too often, especially at the hands of other community members simply for existing, 
is important for us to have a social network. And Marcia had her own. Detective Gregory Callahan comes out to the scene of this horror on the Hudson. He's notified of this body of this African-American individual that's in this feminine expressive clothing. He wasn't sure who the body was, but when he did get the notification that Marsha P. Johnson was missing, he did begin to wonder, could the two be related? He notifies his colleague, Detective Amber Monroe. She too comes out to the scene as well. She makes her way specifically over to the Hudson River while Detective Gregory Callahan goes and discusses the case with Marsha's loved ones. Marsha's loved ones share that the last time that she was seen again was after 4th of July because of her work as a survivor sex worker. She was notified to go and connect with a client. Detective Gregory Callahan made note of this information. He also asks her loved ones, what was Marsha wearing? They mention that she was wearing a blue top with some denim jeans. They made a note of this and it was important for him to make sure that he had this information and convey it back over to Detective Amber Monroe. They did this at the time through the use of beepers. This is 1992. But before we go further into the case, my audience, let's take a moment and think about some miracles that have happened on the Hudson. There was one back in 2009, just 17 years after the hateful homicide of Marsha P. Johnson. Let's take a listen. They are 35 people with a very special bond. All survivors of U.S. Airways Flight 1549, the miracle on the Hudson. It's amazing that all of us survived that day. Many haven't seen each other for years. We brought them to Carolina's Aviation Museum in Charlotte, where they came face to face with the actual jetliner that made that amazing landing. Ben Bostic was in C-20A. I heard a loud boom, and then I looked out the window and saw the left engine on fire. Mark Hood and Denise Lockie were seated together in first class. That's when I reached over and grabbed Denise's hand, and that's when I knew we were going to die. Hearing brace for impact, I think, was the most emotional part for me. A perfect landing, but Michelle Weinegar remembers the plane filling with freezing water. We just survived a plane crash, and now we're going to drown. We were in the back of the plane. We were drowning. There was chaos and panic and everything you can imagine going on in the back of that plane. Watch Inside Edition to see what the families of the survivors have to say to Captain Sully. My audience, as you could hear, this miracle that happened on the Hudson, thanks to Captain Sully. But even though that miracle happened on the Hudson 17 years after the hateful homicide of Marsha Payette Nomine Johnson, there was still this mystery as to first and foremost, who was this body that had been floating on the Hudson? This African-American, beautiful individual, feminine expressive clothing, blue jeans and a blue top. Could this be? Is it she, the Marsha P. Johnson? Detective Callahan notifies Detective Amber Monroe. He goes out to the payphone and calls and conveys the information that Marsha's loved ones has shared. 
She makes the notes to the forensics team, who collects Marsha's fingerprints, as well as corners off the crime scene. They collect some other evidence that's found around on the pier of the Hudson River. And as the body is taken to the coroner's office of New York County, the family of Marsha P. Johnson prepares themselves. Detective Callahan lets them know that there is a body that has been discovered on the Hudson River, and this body could be that of Marsha Pettno Mine Johnson. Her loved ones couldn't even bear the thought that Marsha could be a victim of a hateful homicide. This horror on the Hudson that as news media and outlets are starting to pour out to the pier and the news is starting to trickle in about this potential icon that has bestowed the history of New York starting back in 1969 with the Stonewall riots. Marsha Pantnomine Johnson, this historic icon, legend, the name speaks for itself. Born on August 24th, 1945, she truly paved the way for what we know as the LGBTQ plus movement. So my audience, let's take a moment and learn a little bit about the history of Marsha P. Johnson. Turn around, you're on TV, Marsha. Marsha P. Johnson is remembered as an activist and free spirit with flowers or Christmas lights in her hair and said to be one of the first rioters at Stonewall in 1969. Before the term transgender entered the lexicon, Marsha called herself a transvestite or a drag queen. When I became a drag queen, I started to live my life as a woman. During her life, she and other trans activists struggled to be fully accepted in the gay community, which often excluded trans people. Marsha was often homeless, supporting herself through sex work and repeatedly arrested. But she attracted many friends to help her. A fellow activist once saw Marsha asleep under a table of lilies at a flower shop. The employees welcomed her because they thought she was holy. Once, a judge asked Marsha what the P in her name stood for. She explained. The judge, charmed, said, and that's exactly what I'm going to do. She was released. She was well known in New York's Greenwich Village, where she became an icon after the Stonewall riots. I was one of the first girls to ever come in drag to the Stonewall. 1969 As one story recounts, during the riots, Marsha threw a shot glass into a mirror at the bar after police entered, shouting, I got my civil rights. Marsha was a founding member of the Gay Liberation Front, and she formed Star in 1970 with Sylvia Rivera, a transgender woman and activist. It was revolutionary in its direct support for the trans community. Together, they opened Star House, a shelter for homeless LGBTQ youth. She was also an advocate for those affected by HIV and AIDS and rejected the stigma and shame associated with the virus. I think you stand as close to them as you can and hop out as much as you can, including myself. I have HIV. She remained devoted to her Christian faith throughout her life. Friends say she could be found praying in various churches, at times dressed in velvet, throwing glitter. Marsha died in 1992 at the age of 46. At the time, police said she had taken her own life, a claim friends disputed. I mean, it's hard for me to believe that she would commit suicide. The case was reopened in 2012 as a possible homicide. Like Marsha, trans women continue to suffer from long-standing discrimination and violence. Her legacy reflects the ongoing struggle for transgender people to be safe and receive equal rights. 
people to realize that we're all brothers and sisters and human beings in the human race. The history of Marsha P. Johnson, her life, her legacy is truly through and through. She is someone who has truly paved the way for our community. When we think of pride, when we think of LGBTQ rights, when we think of Marsha P. Johnson, we say her name. And that's exactly what her loved ones wanted to be done. As Detective Gregory Callahan makes his way out to the Hudson River, he continues to also investigate. Detective Amber Monroe at this time has now made her way down to the coroner's office. And after several hours, it is confirmed that the body on the Hudson River is that of Marsha Pantnomine Johnson, this beautiful African-American, 46-year-old transgender female, full of life, vitality, who was known for activizing and activating the gay liberation movement. movement. She's now met with this hateful homicide, this horror on the Hudson, found strangled to death, blunt force trauma to the back of her head. It was confirmed as well as the clothing items that was found on the body matched those that Marsha's loved ones had described to Detective Gregory Callahan. He goes back to their home and he makes the death notification. Her very good friend, Randy Rucker, goes down to the coroner's office to positively identify the body of Marsha P. Johnson. The news is confirmed. The city of New York is notified. Everyone wants answers. Who murdered Marsha and why? This beautiful activist, icon, and though she was met with many dramas and traumas, it did not take away from her truth. Again, she was born on August 24th of 1945 to Albert, Alberta Claiborne and Malcolm Michael Sr. She was one of their six children born in Elizabeth, New Jersey. By the age of 15, Marsha P. Johnson knew her truth and she began to express herself and identify openly and proudly as feminine expressive. Her family, specifically her father, was uncomfortable with this idea of Marsha being in her truth. Her mother was more supportive and with her faith growing up sinking in the church, Marsha knew it was time for her to make her own way. So around 1962, the age of 17, Marsha makes her way to the city of New York. She takes that trek up north and without skipping a beat, she instantly connects with the city of New York. She's beloved. She makes her way into the drag artistry scene as performing to different incredible, incredible artists such as Donna, um, Diana Ross and Donna Summers. Marsha P. Johnson continued to pave her way through the city of New York. But unfortunately, as we saw in the clipping, the history of New York has had its fair share of challenges. Marsha, unfortunately, like a lot of the queer community and trans community in the city of New York, was met with discrimination and bigotry. And when they would go to different clubs and bars in New York, especially over in the Greenwich Village, off of Christopher Street, this was their safe space at the time and still is to this day, they would be met by law enforcement with harassment, discrimination, and even violence. 
And for the next seven years, as Marsha continued to live and navigate through the city of New York, becoming an icon for her incredible drag performances, as well as her willingness to navigate through survival sex work as a way to survive as well. By 1969, June 28th of 1969 to be exact, Marsha P. Johnson, Sylvia Rivera, and others had had enough. The Stonewall riots began. Marsha P. Johnson threw something into a glass, an object, and it shattered and it began an iconic movement. But again, my audience, it wasn't just Marsha. Sylvia Rivera, too, was also a huge icon, born in February of 1951. She was 18 years old when the Stonewall riots began. She looked up to her big sis, Marsha, as well as other icons like Bambi Lamore. All of them in New York were tired as trans women of color of being disrespected and discriminated against. And Sylvia Rivera, a huge icon for the trans Latina movement, was no exception. She found herself as formidable and iconic. And let's take a moment to learn a little bit more about Sylvia Rivera. Just a moment, just a moment, just a moment. I would like to avoid any trouble. This is a day of unity for us. I want us to be happy. Let's All right, it's up to the gay people. What do you want to do? Listen, we don't know what you want. Now, do you want these people to speak? Wait a minute, wait a minute, wait, please wait, please wait. Will the people who want it say yes? That's the end of the conversation. Women of the women's liberation, and they write, saw 
not the women's group. They do not like women. They do not like men. They like the star because we're trying to do something for them. I have been to jail. I have been raped and beaten many times by men, heterosexual men that do not belong in the homosexual shelter. But do you do anything for them? No, you all tell me to go and hide my tail between my legs. I will not no longer put up with this shit. I have been beaten. I have had my nose broken. I have been thrown in jail. I have lost my job. I have lost my apartment for gay liberation. And you all treat me this way? What the fuck's wrong with you all? Think about that. I do not believe in a revolution, but you all do. I believe in the gay power. I believe in us getting our rights, or else I would not be out there fighting for our rights. That's all I wanted to say to your people. If you all want to know about the people that are in jail, and do not forget Bambi Lamore, and Dora Marks, Kenny Messner, and other gay people that are in jail, come and see the people at Star House on 12th Street, on 640, East 12th Street, between B and C, apartment 14. The people that are trying to do something for all of us and not men and women that belong to a white middle class, white club. And that's what you all belong to. Revolution now! Give me a Give me an Give me a Y! And as you can hear my audience, Sylvia Rivera, that's just a little bit about her story. She was met with so much discrimination and violence and trauma back at the 1973 New York City LGBTQ rally and parade. They did not want her on stage. And this was within our own cisgendered queer community. Unfortunately, as we have to be very transparent, um, the 1960s and 70s were met with a lot of discrimination towards our um, trans community members, especially trans people of color, because there was this notion, this idea that in order for our um, gay and lesbian community members to be well received into heterosexual society or hetero society, that there must be this absence of our trans community members, especially the drag performers as well. This became a huge debate, and there's even discussions where, you know, um, our trans community members were encouraged to be at the back 
of the pride parades and rallies. So when Sylvia Rivera got out there in 1973 to discuss her truth about the fact that she had her nose broken, her body being, she lost her job all for gay liberation, it was important for them to hear her. And at this point as well, it wasn't even just Sylvia's story. It was so many other trans people of color, trans women, black and brown, indigenous, Asian Pacific Islander, trans women of color who have been met with violence and discrimination from Stonewall to even before, people who are just trying to be themselves. But I want us to also take a look into the evolution of gay history. Back in 1967, CBS News broadcasted their show called The Homosexuals. Yes, it was called The Homosexuals. It was aired and released back in 1967. But due to the controversy of the title and the nature of the content, it was limitedly released and removed very quickly. We have some of that footage from 1967 where it discusses and follows a series of cisgendered gay men who were living their lives um, low key. And, you know, you're going to hear a little bit about their own journeys and what they're hoping to look for in their own lives. Let's take a look for the evolution of gay history from 1967 to present. On this historic day, Steve Hartman reflects on the long road America is traveling. It's been nearly 50 years since CBS News first took on the subject of gay rights. It was in a documentary. You'll recognize the host, Mike Wallace, but you won't recognize your country. Most Americans are repelled by the mere notion of homosexuality. The CBS News survey shows that two out of three Americans look upon homosexuals with disgust, discomfort, or fear. This was 1967, and whoever named the program cut straight to the chase. CBS reports the homosexuals will continue in a moment. The show was so controversial, not one sponsor would touch it. In fact, the very notion of gay rights was brand new. I'm a country boy, I guess, because I couldn't believe this. I mean, I didn't know this was a problem over here, or at least I didn't think anybody would have a sign out about it. But for me, the most telling part of the program was a bizarre interview with a man shrouded by a houseplant. I don't go looking for homosexual relationships. Apparently, back then, just admitting you were gay required some fairly dense foliage. You are now husband and husband. Now, of course, gay couples can show their love without so much as a ficus. On the steps of City Hall, with every network watching. I know that still makes some people uncomfortable, but they'll get used to it. In 2000, I was best man at one of the very first gay civil unions in the country. My best friend, Nicholas Diambra, and his now husband, Jim Bachlion, went to Vermont for the ceremony. Fifteen years later, they are happily married with two great kids. And when I look at this family, all I see is love. We end as we began, with a homosexual. So much has changed in the last 50 years, but one thing hasn't. At the end of the show, the guy behind the plant said something that could have just as easily come off today's satellite feed. It was a wish. A family, a home, some place where you belong, a place where you love, where you can love somebody, and God knows I need to love somebody. Love never was just a straight thing, as the court has now confirmed. It's a human thing. Steve Hartman, CBS News. So my audience, that was CBS's news, the homosexuals. 
all you want to be is just to be loved and be received by your family. That's what that individual, that gentleman said at the end, just to be loved and received by family. And that's what we all want, right? And that's exactly what Marsha P. Johnson wanted. And when it came time for her family and loved ones to say goodbye on July 13th of 1992, it was heart aching, heartbreaking. The fact that they had to say goodbye. Detective Gregory Callahan, as well as the coroner and Detective Amber Monroe were proposing that maybe Marsha's hateful homicide wasn't a hateful homicide. They were proposing that maybe she was met with a suicide, that she took her own life, that Marsha had too much things going on, going on in her life. She was met with love once in her life by an incredible cisgendered black man back in the mid-60s. Unfortunately, he was murdered for simply loving her, for just embracing her. And so she dealt with a lot of trauma, right? Not only her own physical violence that she faced for simply being herself, but also being incarcerated for being a survivor sex worker. Did Marsha say enough is enough? And she decided to take her own life? This is what Detective Gregory Callahan and Detective Amber Monroe was posing that maybe Marsha just couldn't handle it anymore. But Marsha's loved ones knew that that couldn't be true. That the strong-minded and strong-willed individual who has overcome so much could never go after 4th of July, after that cookout that night in 1992, and just go over to the Hudson and decide to say no more. That's all there is to it. No, not their Marsha. They demanded that Detective Gregory Callahan and Detective Amber Monroe to continue to investigate and look into why was it that Marsha's body was met with strangulation. The fact that there was no water in her lungs. There was blunt force trauma to the back of her head. How could these injuries have come? The coroner poses maybe it was when Marsha fell in. She hit her head, her body faced some trauma, as it was two days in the Hudson. Marsha's family still said no. And not just her family, but also her supporters, her community members. The community of Greenwich Village, that on Christopher Street, said no, let's demand for justice. And that's exactly what they continue to do. Demand for justice. They even went to Crime Stoppers in the city of New York to ask for them to pose any kind of reward. They even reached out to America's Most Wanted to see if anyone would be willing to say Marsha's name because the city of New York, the coroner's office, the law enforcement team was ultimately trying to rule Marsha's hateful homicide to be that of a suicide. But another question had been posed as well, my audience, as we continue to go through this case. Did Marsha P. Johnson start the 1969 race riots? I want you to take a look into this clip of Inside Edition and let me know what you think. There she is, the lady in red. They're on TV, Marsha. I think the story of Marsha P. Johnson should be taught in schools. Everybody loved her. Everybody loved her. 
always say tomorrow is not promised to me. This is the Stonewall Inn. On a hot summer night in 1969, police raided this well-known gay bar as they had many times before. But this time, things were different. The customers fought back. It launched a national movement for LGBTQ rights. Many believe that the powder keg exploded when a trans woman named Marsha P. Johnson picked up a shot glass and threw it, shattering the mirror behind the bar. It wasn't Johnson's first feat of activism, nor would it be her last. But decades later, when she was found dead, it was up to others to advocate to get her justice. For InsideEdition.com, I'm Sal Bono, and this is New York Gritty. The city was totally different, and it was kind of wild. This is me. Kind of dangerous also, especially if you were gay, because there was a lot of prejudice during that time. Somebody had to take you to a gay bar, because it was against the law to serve homosexual alcohol if they'd known. And the windows were painted, everything was dark, black, had a knock on the doors. If you ever noticed, there were mirrors in bars. If you sat at a gay bar, you could not turn around. You had to talk to the person behind you through a mirror. We couldn't sit the way we're sitting now. We had to sit this way. Because they wanted to make sure if the cops came in, they didn't look anything look suspicious. People did what they had to do. You walk down a police car and says, hey, you walk over to them and says, you want to see my nightstick? I said, no, you want to see mine? What are you, wise guy? The atmosphere during that time was the atmosphere of change. People were tired of what was happening. There was the war, there was also Kennedy assassination, there was Martin Luther King assassination, Robert F. Kennedy, Richard Nixon was president, there was the landing on the moon. It was a very exciting time and era, but also as far as the justice system, and the rights of people. People were demanding their rights. On the forefront of the movement was Marsha P. Johnson, a trans woman from New Jersey. When asked what the P stood for, Marsha said, pay it no mind. I don't know if that was her way of saying, don't ask me what it stands for, or that was what it stood for, but it's a, it's a great answer. Didn't you love that? She made a living as a sex worker in Panhandle. She got by with the help of her friends, like Randy Wicker, with whom she lived. You'd be surprised how many gorgeous clothes Randy got around here that, for me that I don't even wear. So Marcia came in that night, slept on the floor, and was here for the next 12 years. Tomorrow morning, I'll give you the breakfast cheap when I'm fixing breakfast for you. Yes, yes, She yes. was a great educator because I was a transphobic. I had no understanding of gender identity. And I don't think most other people did either. There's always been discrimination within the queer community, and in the 60s especially. A lot of the white gay men looked down on people of color. The gay males sometimes looked down on drag and trans. Marcia and Sylvia Rivera, her fellow compatriot, actually were told not to march in the gay pride parade because the gays didn't want drag queens. They thought they were bad for the image of the community. Can you imagine? This was way before Drag Race. But friends say Marsha couldn't stand to see anyone suffer alone. Marsha P. Johnson and Sylvia Rivera were the catalyst for the Stonewall riots on June 28th of 1969. It's important to understand that this is Marsha. Her truth, her tireless effort 
to make sure that our trans community, our non-binary, intersex, and two-spirit communities were all met with accessibility, visibility, equity, inclusion, and liberation. Marsha said it in the beginning of the episode, I want my gay rights now. So could Marsha, this feisty, lovable, beautiful African-American transgender woman who stood over five foot eight in height, mighty and powerful, who sung in the chorus back in her home of Elizabeth, New Jersey, who trekked hundreds of miles to get to New York for almost 30 years later to take her own life. Again, her family and loved ones was determined to make sure that her name was still continued to be said. Detective Gregory Callahan did say that him and his team would continue to ask questions and see if the individual who Marsha P. Johnson had went off with to go meet as she was a survivor sex worker and she was going to meet a potential client after that 4th of July cookout back in 1992 on that Saturday night. There was this possibility that maybe Marsha P. Johnson had met with that gentleman suitor. The two had an exchange of words, potentially about the rate of pay. We know far too often, right? The hateful homicide of Kelly Stowe back in season one. All she wanted to do was be paid the way that she deserved. And what did he do? He shot her. So we know far too often that disputes between client and patron can occur. And especially as a survivor sex worker, Marsha would have had little to no say or justice or support from law enforcement. So could it be that Marsha had had this verbal exchange, argument, disagreement with this gentleman suitor who then decided to beat her in the back of the head, strangle her, and then throw her body into the Hudson where it was left floating for over 48 hours before her body was discovered. Badly decomposing in the summer scorching heat on that Monday, July 6th of 1992. Loved ones said that they didn't know who this gentleman's suitor was, that Marsha did have some regulars, but this guy was someone new. So they didn't have a name or even a car maker model of the car that Marsha maybe got into when she went to go meet this individual over by the Hudson River. There was no information to go on. Individuals who were over at the Hudson River at the time of the hateful homicide do recall that around 4th of July that night that they did hear some arguing. But because this was an area that survivor sex workers frequent, arguments occurred very often. Could that argument been that of Marcia and her killer? We don't know. The witnesses don't know. They couldn't definitively say for sure. But what we do know, my audience, is that it's also important to understand a little bit more about the violence that our community has faced. I want us to take a moment and think about Sylvia Rivera, our beautiful, beautiful co-conspirator, ride or die with Marsha. 
As we think about pride and what it means to our community members, Marsha again, who helped kickstart gay liberation, LGBTQ plus pride as we know it today, Sylvia Rivera also did the same. In around 2001, just eight months before her hateful homicide, she was interviewed asking her own take on what did pride mean to her and the community now. At this point, it had been almost 10 years since the hateful homicide of Marsha P. Johnson. Let's take a listen and see what Sylvia's take on what pride means to her now. Can you introduce yourself? Uh, my name is Sylvia Rivera. I'm co-founder of Street Transvestite Action Revolutionaries, which is now Street Transgender Action Revolutionaries. And my co-founder was Marsha P. Johnson. What about the issues of that there's a lot of organizations that have included T in their, in their bill, like lesbian, gay, bi, and trans? Is it real inclusiveness or is it or just a smokescreen? How do you feel about that? No, that's the bottom line. It's all, it's a big smokescreen. This movement has become so capitalist. It is a capitalist movement. I see this movement becoming a straight gay movement that only believes in that almighty dollar. Now, what kind of logic is this? I don't understand. We do not owe the straight community a damn thing, so why should we be giving them our money? I feel highly offended. So what is the purpose of us, not us, because it, this is no longer my pride. I gave them their pride, but they have not given me mine. But what is the purpose of them celebrating their pride and giving straight people who still really don't accept the community, the gay and lesbian community for what they are, but they want that almighty dollar of ours. And as you could hear from Sylvia Rivera, this is her take on pride. That was 22 years ago, and it was eight months before her death due to liver disease back in 2002. Pride, it means so many interpretations for all of us. Unfortunately, pride has been very exclusionary of our trans community members, of our non-binary community members, intersex and two-spirit community members, and especially those who are black, brown, indigenous, Asian Pacific Islander, no matter how we showed up, unfortunately, we were asked to show up to the back. And Sylvia was worried that, you know, the way that Pride has continued to go from the 70s to the early 2000s, as you heard, that it was becoming more capitalist. And with that being said, because so many of us have felt like our own identities have been ignored and siloed and overlooked, we have created multitudes of prides. Indigenous pride, black pride, trans pride, NB pride. All of our ways to say, hey, we're here. See us, celebrate us. And Marsha and Sylvia both wanted that same visibility. 
And that's why it was very hard for her loved ones to believe that her hateful homicide would go unsolved for over 30 years. My audience, the question who killed Marsha P. Johnson continued to plague her loved ones, her family back in Elizabeth, New Jersey, as well as her loved ones in New York. They all wanted to know who killed Marsha P. Johnson. So much so to the fact that it was important for Victoria Cruz and another incredible trans Latina female to also say Marsha's name. She and David France were part of a Netflix documentary called The Death and Life of Marsha P. Johnson. It focuses on the hateful homicide of Marsha P. Johnson and is still unsolved to this day. She goes through and talks about the fact that no one cares, especially when it comes to law enforcement, to who murdered Marsha, who committed this horror on the Hudson back on that Monday, July 6th of 1992, back on the Hudson River, when her body was discovered around 9 a.m. Eastern Standard Time. As we continue to go through this case, my audience, it's important for us to understand Brought to you by Metro Focus, they sit down and discuss who killed Marsha P. Johnson. Take a look. We are a city full of remarkable people who have done remarkable things. This is the story of a true civil rights pioneer. Back in 1969, Marsha P. Johnson helped spark the iconic Stonewall Riots here in the city and the beginnings of the gay rights movement. Johnson would go on to found the first ever transgender rights organization and become a beloved figure in the Greenwich Village community. But her death 25 years ago still remains a mystery to some. The police department found that Johnson, whose body was found floating in the Hudson River, committed suicide. But those closest to her doubt that's the story. Her case is now the subject of the new documentary, The Death and Life of Marsha P. Johnson, which is directed by Academy Award-nominated filmmaker David France and makes its premiere on Netflix this October. Here's a look. I want to say it was the 4th of July. We were going to meet at midnight, but she never showed up. She was in danger. I was there when they pulled her out. Marsha was so full of life. Marsha P. Johnson was the Rosa Parks of the LGBT movement. Darling, I want my gay rights now! Her case has been cold for 25 years. I'm calling from the Anti-Violence Project here in New York City. I want to try to give Marsha justice. Marsha! Marsha! Street people and the drag queens were the vanguard of the movement. Stonewall. Marsha and I fought the cops off. We were in the streets turning over cars. The movement started the next day. Marsha was famous all around the world. But even famous people, cases go cold. And joining me now with more on this story is the film's director, David France, and Beverly Tillery, the executive director for the New York City Anti-Violence Project, which investigated Marsha's death. Welcome both to the show. Thanks Thank for having you. us. All right, so first starting off, for David, what was it about Marsha's story that made you feel not only is this worth revisiting, but it's worth making a documentary and bringing her story to light? Well, as you said, you know, she really was a central figure in the early LGBT movement, a um, 
a pioneer in the question of uh, transgender rights. And, uh, and she, her death uh, 25 years ago uh, still remains a mystery and, and still weighs heavily on people's minds. The, the idea that she was uh, allowed to die without the proper response from authorities to investigate what happened to her. And, uh, we're in a time now when crimes against the transgender community are skyrocketing. Mm -hmm. uh, there are, there's an epidemic of crime, especially against transgender women of color. And I thought it, it would be time to go back and try to resurrect the case of Marsha's death uh, as a very strong kind of symbolic effort to bring attention to this new wave of crime and to, to underscore the need to address it kind of across the board. And that was brought to you by Metro Focus. Again, this idea of who killed Marsha P. Johnson. And again, they highlighted this incredible documentary called The Death and Life of Marsha P. Johnson brought to you by Netflix. You can find it there and other streaming platforms. As we continue to go through this case, my audience, um, the the community, our trans community, our non-binary, intersex, and two-spirit communities all continue to get on the pavement and ask the questions. Did you see anything? Did you hear anything? They knew that Marsha had been met with a hateful homicide, that she was last seen celebrating with the loved ones, being Marsha singing songs, enjoying some barbecue. In 1992, Marsha was 46, getting ready to turn 47 the following month on August 24th. She was looking forward to a life full of excitement. She loved trying on new costumes and hair pieces. And when she was in, you know, in, incarcerated once again, she was asked, what did the peace stand for? And she said, pay it no mind. So again, that's why her community, our community, my audience, continue to ask those tough questions. Did you see anything? Did you hear anything? Who murdered Marsha? Because unfortunately, Detective Gregory, Gregory Callahan and Detective Amber Monroe had drawn the conclusion that Marsha P. Johnson had committed a suicide. But there was this question as well from our community. There were a few cisgendered gay men from 1975 to 1993 who started to disappear and their body parts were discovered around New York City. They were being targeted. Could Marsha have been the victim of a serial killer? This beautiful, vibrant, trans woman who was known for starting Stonewall. Could she have been overpowered, subdued on the Hudson River by a serial killer? That same serial killer who was targeting cis gay men, could they have thought that Marsha, who was known to be femininely expressive, but also embraced her masculinity at times, could she have been assumed to be a cis gay man? And now, one of the victims of this serial killer? Let's find out. It's in all of us. That fear of being hurt because we're queer. I remember the first gay bar I walked into, 
I thought, oh my God, I've been missing this my entire life. It just felt like home. Queer bars were one of the few places where we could come and feel safe. And then all of a sudden, everything was taken away. Dismembered human remains were found in plastic bags along roadways outside New York City. My dad went down to New York on a business trip and never came home. My brother. My uncle. My friend. He just disappeared. These were pickup crimes. They were last seen at a gay bar. Five Oaks, the townhouse. Clearly, a serial murderer going after gay men was on the loose. It was so frightening because everyone was a suspect. The queer community was very much trying to push law enforcement to give a shit. At this time, we wouldn't put it past the police to kill us. Hate crimes against gays and lesbians are up all over the country. It makes people feel like maybe they're not safe and maybe a murderer isn't going to get caught. We were scared. This guy's going to strike again. Then could I be next? Peter Anderson. Thomas Mulcahy. Anthony Marrero. Michael Sakara. They weren't just a statistic. They had their own story, too. This guy was a serial killer for years. Was he going to make a mistake? How does someone get away with something like that? So my audience, again, could Marsha have been the victim of a serial killer? This insane human being who was going around butchering cis gay men, dismembering their bodies. Though Marsha was not dismembered, she was brutally met with blunt force trauma, strangulation. No water was found in her lungs. Maybe the serial killer didn't get a chance to finish what he, she, or they started. Maybe they were hoping to finish the job before there was an interruption on the Hudson. So what could they do? just throw Marsh into the Hudson? Maybe. All of these questions continue to plague Marsh's loved ones for decades and decades. And one of those community members who was haunted by this horror on the Hudson back on that Monday, July 6th of 1992, was Victoria Cruz. She was a friend of both Marsha and Sylvia. And since now, Sylvia, who had passed away in 2002 due to liver disease, could not continue the fight for Marsha. It was now on for Victoria Cruz to, con to continue the crusade for justice for Marsha. She was known as an activist. She still is to this day. So much so to the fact that David France, a director and producer, had reached out to her. Back around 2015, he wanted to connect with Victoria in hopes to getting her to help say Marsha's name. There had been no further investigation into her hateful homicide. After all, it had been ruled as a suicide. So Victoria Cruz and David France decided to reach out to Detective Gregory Callahan and Detective Amber Monroe to get the answers that so many of us had been wondering. Why was it so easy 
for Marsha's case to be ruled a suicide, like so many black and brown, indigenous and API community cases. They're swept under the rug, misgendered. Oh, this person took their own life. They're just missing. But we know far too often that is not the case. And as we continue to go through this case, my audience, I want us to take a look into Victoria Cruz's endless fight to say Marsha's name into the incredible documentary that we now know and love, known as The Death and Life of Marsha P. Johnson. Hi, my name is Victoria Cruz. I'm working for the Anti-Violence Project. I'm working on a reopened case on the Marsha P. Johnson case that was, uh, she was found in 1992 by Christopher Street Pier. Right. Can I, can I meet with you in reference no. to this particular case? Definitely not. Because? Because I, I'm retired from the NYPD and you're calling me at work. Can we meet outside of your job? No, definitely not. I don't want to meet in regards to anything. He didn't want to tell me anything about the well, case. He doesn't I want to look back. I can't control what people say to you. I, I don't know if you, who you represent. I don't even know if you know if you are who you say you are. Are you are you a lawyer? No, I'm not. You a private investigator? No. We got to give you a little advice. Don't play detective yourself. All right. Leave this to the people that should handle it. In my audience, again, Victoria Cruz, as she tried to navigate a conversation with Detective Gerger Callahan and other law enforcement, she was met with discrimination, trepidation, and just plain out rudeness. They told her to stop investigating and to let it go. The documentary was officially released in 2017, 25 years after the hateful homicide of Marsha P. Johnson. This beautiful 46-year-old black transgender woman who was met with this horror on the Hudson back on Monday, July 6th of 1992, just after leaving or for the July cookout with loved ones. None of them never, ever thought that that would be their last time seeing Marsha. And so many have said, if they only knew that this was their last time, they would have hugged Marsha just a little tighter said, I love you, found a way to get her to giggle so they could get that Marsha laugh. But even though she's no longer with us, Victoria Cruz and David France continued to say her name. So much so that in the last clipping that we're going to look into this episode as we prepare to come to a conclusion, I want you to take a look at an interview pertaining to David France and Victoria Cruz, their motivation, their inspiration, as to why it was so important to highlight Marsha's story. David France, who identifies openly as a cisgendered gay man, knew, right, this polarization between our trans community and our gay community. We've heard about it throughout the entire episode, right? Sylvia got on stage and talked about feeling liberated. And David France wanted to do that. And he did that with 
the, with the help and support of a trans Latina woman. So you see my audience, we can come together as a community, our cis gay community, our cis lesbian community, our trans non-binary intersex and two-spirit communities all can come together for the greater good. So justice can prevail. Let's take a listen to see what David France and Victoria Cruz had to say as to what inspired and motivated them to say Marsha's name. Welcome Victoria and David and congratulations on the movie Thank you. and for telling an important part of our community's history, which is really important to us. Mm -hmm. So before we start, for people who have not seen the movie, I don't know why they haven't, do you want to tell us briefly what it's about, David? Uh, this is uh, The Death and Life of Marsha P. Johnson. It's about a transformative figure from New York culture, from the LGBT community. In uh, uh, the 60s forward, she was um, one of the central figures at the Stonewall Riots. Um, and she went on to be a key player in the building of the modern LGBT movement. And, and, uh, and she, she was well known and well loved um, for her uh, presence in culture and in politics and in theater, and uh, not just in New York, but around the world, really. She had a, a European fan base from touring there. And, and all of that ended in 1992 when she was found uh, mysteriously uh, floating in the Hudson River. So it's an examination both of of her legacy mm -hmm. and what might have happened to her back then in 92. So Victoria, did you start or did he start? Uh, you, you did the investigation. I wonder how you two hooked up with each other. Well, he called me and uh, I had just finished retiring for a little while and I says, well, I'm doing me now. Then I got tired of doing me and then I says, well, you know what? It's kind of boring. Let me just call David and see what uh, he wants. And I called um, Sue, which is the person that got me in contact with David, and I called him and set it up in person, because I like to see what I'm looking at. <laughs> so you had the idea, David, to yeah. start this off. I, I did, and, and Victoria had worked for many years, for almost two decades, at the New York City Anti-Violence Project, which is uh, kind of the, the core agency in the LGBTQ community that responds to violence against members of the community. And she had been an advocate there, and a counselor, um, and a person who was really central to, to uh, the, the, the efficacy of the group. I went to the AVP because I knew that they had been involved in 92 in the investigation on, uh, on the community's behalf into Marsha's death. And I know that they had advocated uh, against a kind of a, a, the silence of the police department and the kind of the political um, uh, desire to just kind of walk away from this really important death and not do anything, not invest anything in the investigation. So I, I went to the Anti-Violence Project and said, do you have somebody who would be interested in going back and looking at that case? This is the 25th anniversary of her death. And they immediately um, uh, sent me to Victoria because not only um, w w did the, 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 the person and the story have some personal um, resonance with her, but she, she, was, um, sh she was really the more capable people yeah. there to be able to take this up and, and, and let us, through her, discover this rich, rich mm -hmm. uh, history. Victoria, why was it so important to you to take this on? It, it was important to me to take this on because there's a history there that's not being told by others. And people have to know what happened then, how the community was treated then, and why these two particular women, Sylvia Rivera and Marcia Johnson, spoke out against that particular treatment, either from within our own community. 
and my audience, we have to give the biggest of thank yous to Victoria Cruz and David France, two incredible community members who knew how important it was to say Marsha's name. And as we prepare to conclude season five, episode one, the murder of Marsha P. Johnson, a horror on the Hudson, this beautiful black transgender woman whose hateful homicide still remains unsolved 30 years later. If you know of anything, please reach out to Crime Stoppers. Please reach out to the law enforcement team with the city of New York. Say something. Give her her voice back. We remember you, Marsha. Pay it no mind, Johnson. Born August 24, 1945. And resting on since Monday, July 6th of 1992. We remember you. Yesterday, today, tomorrow, forever, and always. Thank you so much, my audience, for tuning in to Season 5, Episode 1, The Murder of Marsha P. Johnson, A Horror on the Hudson. My name is Mallory Jenner Robinson, your host. Please follow us on Instagram at A Hateful Homicide, Twitter at A Hateful Homicide, Facebook at A Hateful Homicide. You can also subscribe to our YouTube channel, A Hateful Homicide. Also, please check out our website, ahatefulhomicide.net. And just again, thank you so much for continuously supporting. <sighs> we did it, you all. Covered Marsha's story. And until next time, thank you so much and take care. Bye-bye.